Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this message in our current series. I had gotten a job at Naval Undersea Warfare Center in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, while I was there, I went on to get my master's degree uh, in electrical engineering in 91. And then uh, I went on to get my PhD uh, in 2003. I met Patty, the love of my life. Uh, I met her on the dance floor. So many people don't know that back in the day, I would wear my MC Hammer pants because I was a fan of dancing to all of the late 80s and early 90s dance songs. So I learned all the dances and we used to go out uh, three nights a week dancing. And I saw Patty, I was up in the airy uh, on the third floor looking down and I said, oh, Patty. Um, well, I didn't know her at that point, but I said, oh, there's the beautiful girl down there. Uh, she's smiling, she looks happy. She looks like she would love to dance. So I'm gonna go and ask her to dance. So we got on the dance floor and uh, given that um super geek um i had 20 questions and i asked her all the questions on the dance floor and she she didn't know what to make of it uh and she said well you know what do i have to lose to uh, go on one date and she gave me her number and i checked the, the number of digits and i said oh that is a valid phone number so i called her and we went on a first date and uh been together uh, uh 35 years and actually married 33 years when I was growing up and with my family, I was brought up as being Orthodox uh, Jewish. And uh, I've always had a close relationship with God. Um, Judaism had a lot of interesting things, but I also found um, it a bit wanting. So um, at some point after the kids were uh, bar mitzvah, we decided that the synagogue wasn't necessarily the place for us, so we decided that we would uh, worship uh, on our own. And even back then, I thought that the relationship with God was much more important than the rules and regulations that Judaism had. So the reason why I decided to explore outside that faith is that I felt I needed a closer connection to God, that I hadn't been as close, maybe formally, with Him and then we heard Pastor Ben speak, and he had a lot to say about Jesus. Um, and uh, I wanted to learn more about exactly what Jesus said in the gospel, because it's one thing to assume something when you're in a different religion, as opposed to actually understanding and spending the time to, to read the gospel and understand what's said. And so I read the gospels. And I heard what Jesus had to say. And then I understood that he was Jewish. And then he became the first Christian. And I said, what an honor and a privilege to come at it from the perspective of being Jewish first, understanding what had gone on before, and going back and taking a look at all of the things in the Psalms and Isaiah, the later prophets, um, David, everything pointing to Jesus. 
There's nothing that he couldn't answer. I might not like the answers, but I walked slowly with Jesus, and it was bit by bit that I would learn more about him and want to learn more and have a thirst to read the gospel. Every time I had a question, I feel that Jesus put me in check intellectually. Do I have you now that you've read the gospel and you've understood that he changed the whole power structure and he didn't come to set one people free. He came to set everybody free. And it wasn't free from violence. It was a freedom of the soul, a freedom for everyone to have the closest relationship that you'd want to have with Jesus, with God the Father, with the Holy Spirit. It's up to you. And Jesus is just waiting for you to accept him. And I understood that. And it was just beautiful that he would pull me in. There we go. I was going to ask Fletcher to wear his MC Hammer pants today. That's a beautiful picture. Man, I love that. I'm not sure if Fletcher's in the room. I know he's coming this morning. I'm not sure if he's at the 9 or 11. Could we just thank him for sharing his story one more time? I've been privileged to walk alongside Fletcher these past five or six years in this kind of journey with Jesus and uh, it's beautiful and and it comes at a, a perfect moment in this series I thought we might talk about the story this weekend not just our stories though I want to get there too and Fletcher's story is a good place to begin with the story because let's let's face it the story is confusing because it's old it's it's thousands of years old and in sometimes multiple thousands of years old and it's Jewish many parts of it are Jewish and that makes it sort of foreign and confusing so what is the story and how does the story become my story how do we make sense out of all of this about Jesus and Messiah and Old Testament and Israel and salvation? And what does that mean for me? Well, I want to take a minute just to try and tell the story. And to do that, we've got to go back, all the way back to Genesis. And it feels like we're going back to Genesis an awful lot because it's such a foundational book. By the way, we're going to cover a lot of Scripture this morning. And if you find yourself wanting to go back and, and review the verses, here's an easy way to do that. We have a church app. Just go to any of your app stores and search for Cape Cod Church. You'll find it. And every week we list out all the verses so you can follow along or you can go back and you can get them all there. We go back to Genesis and in, in some ways we've covered here in recent weeks the, the story of the creation of Adam and Eve and the significance of that. But we probably need to introduce ourselves to a character who honestly is mysterious in the pages of Scripture. It's a, a snake. 
Oftentimes, we think of snake as Satan, but it doesn't actually tell us that. It, it simply gives us that there was a snake in the garden, and in this story, the snake is the personification of evil. He is the emissary of Satan for sure, but he is the personification of evil, and with it comes the temptation to do what's wrong. Literally in this story, the temptation for you and I, for mankind, to choose their own way over God's way. And the snake steps into the picture in the story of the creation to, to woo us towards choosing our own way. Of course, that's how the story goes down. It begins with creation and very quickly in just a few short chapters it ends with the fall, the introduction of sin and brokenness into our world. But then in chapter 3, in this verse that means so much, it says in verse 14, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, this personification of evil, the image of Satan, he says, Because you have done this, you are cursed. More than all animals, domestic and wild, you will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. But then in verse 5, there are these words that come to us now thousands of years later with prophetic overtones. He says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between you and her offspring. And now the, the, the story, the illustration, the, the prophecy moves forward. He's telling us what's going to happen. And now he says something very specific. It says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There's an offspring coming. The story is not over. Just because sin has broken into the world doesn't mean the story has ended. Your goal, this one who's coming, and this is the first picture we have of Messiah, Savior, this indication that there is one coming who is going to set what is wrong to right. And here's what it says. You will strike his heel. You will bring damage to him. But he will strike your head. He is going to strike the head, cut off the head, win the victory. And for the very first time, at the beginning of the story, we see the introduction of this idea that there is one coming who is going to set everything wrong to right. A few chapters later, in the 12th chapter of Genesis, it says the Lord had said to Abraham, you remember perhaps, that Abram becomes Abraham, the father of Israel. Really, the, the father of all the Abrahamic faiths. Leave your country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make of you, a, you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. And then these prophetic words. All the families on earth will be blessed 
through you. I'm going to make of you a nation, Abraham. I'm going to create out of your family a people. And out of that family is going to come someone that is going to change the world, that is going to bless all of people for all of time. And we get that next glimpse into Messiah, this picture that one is coming who is going to change everything. And so for the story of the Old Testament, they're, they're longing, they're waiting for the one who would come and set everything that was wrong to right. And with every new generation, with every gifted leader, the hopes would rise, is this the one? And then Israel gets themselves a king, despite God's best efforts to keep them from that. And with every king that comes on the scene, another layer of disappointment. The kings fail them, disappoint them, bloody their hands, make corrupt decisions, prove themselves unworthy. And then, destruction. Israel is divided, taken away captive by Babylon. And honestly, if you read the story, it just looks like the snake is winning. Then comes this, this strange group. They're called prophets. God, God anoints men. He picks these, these men and women to stand up and speak loudly, to remind the people of what is right and wrong, often while they're in exile, and to remind them, one day, a Messiah is coming. One day, the snake killer will be here. Don't give up hope. This is how the story plays out. In fact, one of those prophets, maybe one of the most famous of all, is a prophet named Isaiah. In one passage in Isaiah chapter 53, he speaks so clearly, it feels like it was written after the fact. He tells us uh, what this Messiah will look like. For the first time, we have contour and outline. We, we get a picture of what the Messiah would be. In fact, if you read it, you'll think it might have been written after the fact. In fact, Isaiah is written 700 years before Jesus shows up. The New Testament authors thought so much of this 37 times in the New Testament, they quote this one chapter. We have a copy of the book of Isaiah that dates to physical copy from the Dead Sea Scrolls that dates to 150 years before the birth of Jesus. And here's what the prophet said. Let me just read you a piece of it. For those of you who know the story of Jesus well, this will be unmistakable. It says in verse 5, He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed, for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, 
yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Then in verse 10, it says this, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. The snake killer is coming. Man, don't give up hope. The story is not over. There is a Messiah coming, but they lingered in captivity. For a long period. And then we turn the pages of our Bible and we find ourselves in the first gospel. Matthew, who writes the story of Jesus, a biography of a man he had known. And he begins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17 with this. It's a bit of a, a genealogy. He's giving a dating. He says, all of these listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the Babylonian exile and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Huh. He's here. That's what Matthew is saying. We've met him, we've known him, we've seen the story. From then on, Jesus, chapter 4, verse 17, began to preach. Here's what he said. Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The salvation you have been waiting for. The snake killer who was promised is here. Are you ready? Get ready. God is going to do what he promised to do. And I'm here to do it. Some chapters later in Matthew 16 the story starts to shift to that important, pivotal moment. It says this in verse 21. It says, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Oh, snake, you're going to bite him on the heel. But he's going to crush your head. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. That's the story. That's the story that changes everything. Matthew 28, verse 5 and 6 gives us the moment where we see it. The angel spoke to the woman. Don't be afraid, he says. I know you're looking for Jesus. Who was crucified? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying. Paul, sometime later, would write this in Romans chapter 8. He's sort of going back and summing up the story. He's, going, he's reaching back to the Old Testament and he's talking about the brokenness of creation. And he says this, For we know 
that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In other words, all of creation, all of the world has been struggling with the brokenness everywhere you look of sin. And verse 23 says, and we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. In other words, listen, we're in it too. We're in the middle of the brokenness. Even when you've chosen to follow after Jesus, you're in the middle of this broken story. But then he, he, he turns and he says, we wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Man, we're waiting one day, one day. He's going to set everything that is wrong to right and the snake will be forever crushed and every brokenness will be made whole. But then he says this, we were, we were given this hope when we were saved. There's a phrase that's used to describe this, that, that our, our salvation in Jesus is now and not yet. Now and not yet. We've been saved. We've been given new hope. He's begun his work in the world 2,000 years ago on the cross, and it's continuing in our lives, but it's not fully realized yet. We're still in the midst of a groaning, broken world. But make it clear mark it down his work began on the cross and through the resurrection and it's true in us it's now and it's not yet and this this is the story of what God is doing in the world of what the only begotten son of the father God in the flesh fully God fully man Jesus Christ is doing in the world. But how does an old story become my story? Like, like what do we do with that? What am I supposed to do with the story of, of, of Messiah, of Jesus? In some ways, that was the question that the disciples were asking in the verse I want to read you. They, Jesus was telling them all that was come and, and, and about the Father's home and everything the kingdom of heaven promised to them. And, and they said, we don't know. His own followers, his own disciples, they said, we don't know how to get there. Like, Jesus, you got to help us because like... How are we supposed to follow you? How are we supposed to know God? How are we supposed to have this salvation? How does it become ours? We don't know the way. And Jesus answers with one of his most famous statements of all. In fact, it might be also one of his most controversial but he says it loud and plain and clear. Let me read it to you. In John chapter 14, in verse 6, Jesus told him, 
This was his response. We don't know the way. Jesus said this. I am the way. The truth and the life. And then he adds, no one can come to the Father except through me. The exclusivity, the absolute nature of this promise makes it controversial on its face. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't just say, I'm the way to the Father. Did you catch that? He, he doesn't just say, I'm the way to the Father. In fact, he, he stops with, with some emphasis, some particularity. He wants to emphasize and show these three different things. He says, I'm the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm I'm the way. Now this is this is significant when Jesus says I'm I'm the way. He He's doing something that's subtle but profound. They were, they were asking him, often like we're asking him, what do I need to do to get this? How do I, what do I do? And Jesus responds, and he doesn't give them something to do. He gives them a person. He says the way is not by doing something. The way is a person. It was a complete flipping upside down of what anyone would have expected. It wasn't a list. It wasn't a set of rules. It was, it was the way is not a way of doing. The way is a person. Let me just say that again. The way is not a way of doing. The way is a person. It's Jesus Christ. You, you, we're, we're accustomed to a way of doing, do all of, of this because it satisfies a part of us that, that, wants to, that wants to do, that wants to fulfill, that wants to accomplish, that wants to earn something. And, 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 and we're, we're, we're wound that way. Like, what do I need to do? Show me what I'll need to do, and I'll do it. I'll do whatever I got to do because I'm motivated like that. I'm on it, Lord. Just show me what I need to do. But Jesus comes in. He says, it's not about what you do. Instead, this is about a person who's done something for you. See, here's the problem with doing. You'll always wonder, have you done enough? Let me say that again. If, if, your, if your relationship with God, if your pathway to the Father is about what you do, you'll always worry, have I done enough? Because how much is enough? There's a little book we give out called How Good, you know, how good Do I Have to Be? Or Is It Good Enough? And, and, and internally, here's what we do. We, 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 we tell ourselves, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Pretty good. <clears throat> I'm not great, but I'm I'm better than, you know, I have to point to an empty seat. I'm better. Right? Somebody go, I'm never going back to that church. I get it. How good is, is good enough? Was I good enough? 
And as much as we tell ourselves, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, there's a part of us that would live in constant anxiety. You ever, you ever go on a ride? Some of you aren't going to be able to relate to us, and I can't help you with that. But have you ever gone on a ride and had a weight limit, and you were close? It's like, hey, you can go on this zip line. You know, you can go on this, and you're, you're like close. And you're like, I'm close. If I take off my shoes and my socks and my watch and my pants and... Sammy and I, uh, a few years ago, we went on a, a helicopter ride, and they had a, they had a weight distribution thing. And uh, I, I looked at the list. I'm like, yeah, we make that if you average the two of us out perfectly. <laughs> they weren't averaging, though. And we went, and when we got there for this thing, they had scales. You know why they had scales? because people lie. That's why. They don't trust you. Oh, you said you were. No, you're 25 more than that. Jump on the scale. We passed. We got on the plane. It was awesome. Helicopter. Here's what Jesus is saying. There's no scales in heaven. The way is not a way of doing. It's not being good enough. It's, it's about the one who's done it for you, Jesus Christ. He is the way. And then he says, I'm the truth. It's this, it's this explicit claim to being the true way. To being the one we should trust in. And in a pluralistic world, this is... This is on its face controversial. Who, who gets to claim and dare say that they are the truth? I, I heard a commentator online the other day, Ben Shapiro, say this. He says, Jesus was a rebel who led a revolt against the Roman government and got killed for his efforts. That's it. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't even a prophet. Whoa. There's only one problem with that. Historically, we know that he wasn't a rebel. He never led a revolt. They wanted him to, but he wouldn't. In fact, he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. That's not the message they were looking for. And it's true, he did get killed for his effort, but you've left out one detail. He didn't stay dead. And if he had stayed dead, listen, I, I'll give it to you. Listen, he's a, he's a failed revolutionary. But he rose from the dead. And in what was the most attested to miracle in all of history, his, his death witnessed by crowds, evidenced by the Roman government, settled with a spear in his side, buried in a guarded tomb. This isn't he was laying on the table and they had defibrillators on him and 30 seconds later a heartbeat came again. No, this is, this is we made sure he was absolutely dead and we buried him in a tomb. And, and when he came back, he didn't just come back in a vision to people. He came back and he, 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 he presented himself to crowds of, of hundreds. And the very people who knew him wrote about it right away. 
the people who had been afraid for their life and unwilling to stand with Jesus at his crucifixion were so moved and changed by his resurrection, they would to a person give up their lives and martyred him instead of recanting the truth of the resurrection. Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth. And then he finishes by saying, I'm the life. You know, we love that word around here. I'm the life. The life you're looking for, I'm it. In another place in John, in chapter 10, Jesus said it this way. He says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. There's a lot of things we could say about that, but what strikes me most in reading this as he finishes with, I'm the life. I've come to the life that you want, the, the full, flourishing life that you dream of. I'm it. That's what I've come to give you. That was my plan. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's coming to win your heart, not force your hand. That's a world of difference. He he came to, 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 to win your heart, to offer himself up in the most sacrificial of ways so that you could choose to accept him or reject him. He came to win our heart. I think that's why I like Fletcher's story so much. Starts off with his own love story, MC Hammer Pants. I can relate to that. How many people can relate? Anybody have parachute pants? That was the same era. Man, Fletcher's braver than I was. I wasn't donning no MC Hammer Pants at the dance floor. Winning over Patty's heart with dance moves. Man. And then he meets Jesus. And he says, you can go back and watch it online and watch it closely. He says, I walk slowly with Jesus through the Gospels. (laughs) I was just reading them. Who is this guy? Who is this Jewish man who they say was the Messiah? He says, I walked slowly with him. And then this, and he pulled me in. That's what Jesus wants to do. He came to win your heart. And that most famous of verses, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It was his plan from the very beginning. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to ask you this this morning. For some, just sitting here, you're 
maybe tracing back through the story of what God has done from the very beginning and how that led to a moment for you where you said yes to Jesus Christ. But maybe you're here and you've been on this slow walk with Jesus. And I don't just mean you've been walking here in church. I mean, you've just been on this journey. Maybe it started when you were a child and you went to a Sunday school or a CCD class or maybe you went off to college and started reading a bit of the Bible and some other things and you've just been on this journey. Maybe your kids started asking questions you didn't have answers to. And now you're figuring it out and it feels like it's more for you than it is for them. And maybe you're here today and Jesus is pulling you in and you're ready to say yes to him and give your life to him. I just want to invite you in the quiet of this moment take that step to take that bold step of faith maybe you do it just quietly in your seats by declaring this verse Jesus I believe that you are the way that you're the truth and the life and I trust in you and you alone as my savior I just want to invite you, if you've never done that, to take this moment to make him yours. Let me lead you in a prayer that says just that. Dear God, I'm here this morning before you. Jesus, I believe this verse is true. And it's for me. I believe you are the way. You offer me forgiveness through what you did on the cross. I believe you're the true way, Father. I believe that you're the life. I invite you into my life. Help me now to live fully for you. I pray in Jesus' name.